Well, hardly a day goes by, either here in the UK or in the States, that the headlines aren't talking about the failing economy, about the, jobless the job declines, about crises in pensions. And so I'm not surprised that I hear a lot of followers of Christ talking, chattering, wringing their hands about loss of personal prosperity, how maybe my job's at risk, or my pension is not going to be full, or as a university student, maybe I'll never get a job. And, and, and I think these, by the way, are legitimate concerns. My, my concern is that as I hear God's people talking about this, that it seems to be in the context that personal prosperity is the holy grail of life at its best. And the loss of that is the loss of the most important thing in life. Well, Jesus has a totally different take on that. In fact, what we're going to learn this morning is that from Christ's point of view, personal prosperity may just be a spiritual danger in our lives. I think it's interesting when you hear church leaders in China talk today, and you realize that China has this phenomenal history of the gospel. Back in the 1940s, when all the missionaries were either martyred or expelled, and the doors closed in China behind the bamboo curtain, they tell us that there were about a million Christians in China. Well, behind those, that bamboo curtain with no missionaries, very few Bibles, where Christianity was outlawed, where Christians were reduced to peasant status. When the bamboo curtain began to crack in the late 70s and early 80s, and we got kind of sneak back in and meet the church, the head count was that there were over 70 million Christians in China with the gospel on fire. And now church leaders in China, with China's booming economy, are telling us that their major concern is that this new opportunity for affluence and personal prosperity is beginning to create apathy among the Christians and to dull the edge of the gospel. So, I think we need to talk about this. When Jesus writes his seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, which, by the way, when these letters were dispersed, this was the cradle of early Christianity. He writes these letters to speak to the churches against those things that would dull their power. Um, and in these letters to these seven churches, uh, there is a pattern. Uh, there's always an introduction of Jesus identifying himself with the signature statement that sets up the letter. Then there is the letter, and then a promise to those who overcome. And in the letters, there is usually a commendation, some attaboys, like, way to go, you're doing a good job here. And then a section of reproof, where they needed to repent and change. Two of the letters, interestingly enough, have no reproof, only commendation. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. One of the letters, however, the letter we're going to look at this morning has no commendation and only reproof. In fact, the reproof toward this church is far more stinging 
than any of the other letters that Christ wrote. So I find myself thinking, oh my goodness, what did this church do to deserve such a stinging reproof? Especially since in some of the churches they were permitting heresy and false teaching. Some of the churches had assimilated by compromising with the pagan culture. Some of the churches had permitted the sect of the Nicolaitans, which among other things believed that everything was created by God and was good, including sex, and that sexual morality outside of the bounds of biblical uh, boundaries was an expression of, uh, of the way God has created us. So with all of those other things happening in the churches, I want to know what is going on in this church that's creating such a problem. It is the church located in the town of Laodicea. And if you brought your Bibles to church this morning, I would like to have you join me in reading this letter that Christ writes to this church in Revelation chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14. You'll follow along in your copy of Scripture as I read. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen. So here's the signature. Jesus calls himself the Amen, which literally means, as you probably know, true, verily, final word. All right, so we don't argue with Jesus. He is like the Amen. He is the true one. He said, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, and here's the stinging reproof, I feel like spitting you out of my mouth. And the Greek here, in a sense, has the sense of, of horrible distaste, of nausea, of it's kind of like, you make me sick. Now, I don't know what kind of commentary you'd like to have Jesus put on your life, but that's one thing I hope he never says about me. So what is the problem? For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are actually wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone Jesus says hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me may God add his blessing to this reading of this letter to the church of Laodicea now, I think I would just like to clarify one thing about how we normally look at and listen to this letter, because uh, I'm sure this wouldn't be true in the UK, but in the States growing up, I've heard like so many messages that this is really about the fact that they're apathetic, they're lukewarm. And Jesus wants to get them hot for God and hot for the gospel. 
and on fire for him. So this is the kind of message you often hear for revival to break out and repent from our lukewarm warmness. And now, by the way, I do think that Christ wants us to be on fire for him. All right, so I just want to make that clear right off the bat. But I'm, that is really not the point of this text. In fact, if that's the point of the text, then why did Jesus say, I would rather that you would be either cold or hot? I really don't think he wants us to be cold for him. So clarifying that, let's unwrap what Christ is saying here, and I would like to do it by asking four questions of the text. Number one, what's with the metaphor of lukewarm, cold, hot, spitting you out of my mouth? What, where does that metaphor come from? Question number two, what went wrong in this church with these people? Question number three, what should prosperity-oriented Christians be worried about? And question number four, what can be done? All right, so question number one, what's with the metaphor? Now, you need to understand something about Laodicea historically. Laodicea was planted right in the middle of the major trade routes of that day, which gave them phenomenal uh, economic advantage. The problem of putting the city right in the midst and the crossroads of the trade routes was that there was no water there. They dug down and there was no water. The closest water they could get was from five miles away, and they dug a water well five miles away for water for the city, which meant they had to viaduct the water across those five miles. And if you've ever been to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, you know how hot that gets. So by the time you have the cold water coming up out of the spring, moving five miles through these pipes, ultimately by the time the water gets to Laodicea, it is going to be, help me here, very good, lukewarm. Now on top of that, they had a problem with the well because it was full of, of minerals, calcium, sulfur. Uh, so by the time this water got there, it was lukewarm water that tasted awful. Uh, in fact, Marty and I have been on more than one occasion to the ruins of Laodicea, and today you can actually walk through the ruins and pick up the pipes that brought the water, and you'll see them literally encrusted so that there's only this big a hole with all these minerals that made their water so horribly distasteful. So if you lived in Laodicea, and you made yourself lemonade, don't put ice cubes from the Laodicean water in your lemonade. Kind of like, don't cook your vegetables in this water because it tastes horrible. Now, in addition to that, you had Colossae just a few miles up at the foot of the mountains from Laodicea, which had snowmelt water and wonderful cold spring water, and they were known for their wonderful cold water. Uh, in fact, if you lived in that day and went and bought a little bottle of water for a pound, it may have said Colossian snowmelt water, pure and refreshing kind of a thing. <laughs> and then Heropolis, which was about five miles in the other direction, had hot springs. That, and if you go there today, those hot springs are still there, and it was a place for healing. And, and so now we begin to get the picture of what Christ is saying. He says, you are lukewarm. You're like your water. I wish you were cold, like 
refreshing like classy or, or hot springs, but the fact that you are like your water, you are distasteful to me. I feel like spitting you out of my mouth. You, I, you, you make me sick. That's the point he is trying to make. It's something about how they affect Christ and how their water affects them. They would get the picture, by the way, just reading this. As the water affects them, so they are affecting Christ. So if it's not that you're not hot for Jesus, then what is the problem? Question number two, what went wrong? Well, obviously, Christ makes it very clear in the text. He says, I would like to spit you out of my mouth for you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, I just, so obviously, it's a prosperity problem. And I want to make something clear that God is not against wealth, nor is he against prosperity. He is against what it tends to do to us. So if the people at Laodicea would have said, I am rich and have great wealth, and I'm thankful to God for how he has so abundantly blessed me in his mercy, seeking ways to take my wealth to advance the cause of the kingdom, I think Jesus would have been good with that. It's the problem of that last phrase. Because I am rich and wealthy, from my point of view, I need nothing. Which would include that they didn't even feel like they needed Christ and his presence so that their prosperity had in effect marginalized Christ out of their lives because they had everything they needed. This is the sin of self-sufficiency. You know, I know that um, we often go to the Word and the Spirit convicts us about all those self-hyphenated sins like self-centeredness and we're immediately convicted and feel guilty and want to repent and I hear so little about this problem of self-sufficiency that tends to put Jesus to the margins in our lives. When I grew up in the States in church we used to have this song that we sang. I don't know if you sing it here or not. I'm sure, certain that anybody under 30 has no clue about this song. But uh, it went, I need thee, oh, anybody, do you know that song? Let's just sing it. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Laodiceans never sang that song. It wasn't in their hymnal. They had everything they needed. And they didn't think they needed what Jesus would bring them. Our pastor this morning read from Deuteronomy when God leading the children into that wonderful land of milk and honey and phenomenal prosperity warned them. And back in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, he says, when you get into the land and you have cities that you did not build, and vast vineyards that you did not plant, and all the prosperity of the land of Canaan, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord thy God. 
that's what went wrong. Um, the city of Laodicea was planted on these trade routes, which made them the banking capital of that part of the world, overflowing with gold and riches. Their buildings bedecked with gold trim. Uh, Their affluence was so obvious. Uh, They had a rare material from their uh, flocks of lambs called black wool that was coveted all over the world. And their clothing was sold everywhere. And out of the minerals of the ground, they had... The, the, a special salve, a medicinal salve for ailments of the eye and that, that that was coveted as well and they sold that. And so being at the trade routes with these wonderful commodities, they were just so affluent. Uh, it's fascinating that if you go to Ephesus today, they have this one massive theater. It was kind of like the bragging rights of the town. It's that theater that Paul and his disciples were dragged into when the riots over the silversmiths happened. But unusually, Laodicea has two theaters. So they're the two-theater town. And when a terrible earthquake literally obliterated the landscape of Laodicea, And the Roman Empire, the Roman government, Caesar, offered to come and help them to rebuild it, like our governments do today when there are great national tragedies. They said, no thank you. We don't need your money. (laughs) We will rebuild our city ourselves. It's the whole cultural environment that had seeped itself into the church. I think that if um, I were to come home one evening and over dinner Marty would say to me you know what Joe I really appreciate our relationship but you probably need to know I really don't need you I'm you know I'll live with you and you know I'll be here we can chat once in a while and go places together but I just want you to know At the end of the day, Joe, I don't need you. Uh, You just need to know. I really don't need you. I'm fine by myself. Do you think that would hurt? Do I have a witness on that? I think so. I know so. And for those of us who are locked into the pursuit of prosperity, who ultimately say, I think I have everything I need, and we don't need Christ. That's what we say to him. No wonder he's concerned. No wonder the strength of the reproof. So, third question. What should we worry about as prosperity-oriented Christians? We ought to worry about Christ's perspective on our riches. Because notice that he continue, goes on to say, actually, you think you're rich, but when I look at you, I notice that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So all of a sudden I realize that Jesus has a whole different take on personal prosperity and that he defined riches in a whole different way. They think they're cool and they've got everything they need. And he says, from my point of view, you are destitute poor and wretched, blind and naked. 
when you read through the narratives of the gospel, Christ is sounding this same theme periodically, and I think my most favorite one is in Luke chapter 12, where at this point, Jesus is the emerging rabbi, and he's got all the headlines, and everybody, everywhere he goes, he's like the magnet, and people just flock around him to hear his teaching, and, and I mean, you would love to have an opportunity to talk to him, and if you got close to him, you might, hey, will you sign my Bible, or, you know, it's just like, he was like, big, and so it's fascinating, in Luke chapter 12, a man in a crowd connects eyes with Christ and has a moment to say something to Jesus. This, this is huge. And, and so he shouts out, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, if you get one shot at Jesus, you know, that may not be the good place to start. <laughs> I think if I ever had one shot at Jesus, I would want to say something so profound that he would go, hmm, I never thought of that. <laughs> Could we have dinner and talk together about that? So Jesus takes this man who is a prosperity-oriented person whose brother has cheated him out of part of the inheritance and Christ wa the man wants Christ to leverage the moment. And he takes it as a teaching moment and says something that is so counterintuitive, so countercultural, so critical for us to hear. He says, take heed and beware. Warning label. Take heed and beware. A man's take heed and beware of greed. By the way, the Greek word for greed is more. I mean, how, how isn't that just what greed is? More, this demon inside of us that always has us revved up for more, that this uns insatiable hunger inside for more. I hate to admit this to you, but Marty and I had the opportunity of kind of building a house and designing it. it wasn't extravagant, but we kind of like always the kind of house we wanted. And so we had the opportunity to help design it and build it and move into it and loved it. Uh, about six or eight months after we had moved in, I was visiting our daughter who lived in another state. And uh, as we were driving through her town, we drove through this neighborhood. Should I admit this to you or not? I, I couldn't believe. I mean, God had just given us this. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'd love a house like that. I wonder if I could ever have a house. Like, do, do you know what the feeling? And so warning label, take heed and beware of the demon of more. For, now here's the counterintuitive intuitive statement that we must hear. For, he said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Just let that sink in. For all of us who are in the pursuit of more, Christ comes, clears away the fog, and makes clarity by saying, your life does not consist of your personal prosperity, of the things you can accumulate, that there is something more significant to life than that. 
That's what went wrong with this church. Is that they had redefined life by personal prosperity. So Christ told the story of a wealthy man who had such great harvests that his barns were already full, so he had to tear them down and build more. I have a question to ask. How many of you think he already had enough? Are you here this morning? How many of you think he already had enough? Of course, his barns were full. I mean, did it ever cross his mind, I have enough, I could help build a hospital or give something to the poor or what? No, it's like, head tear them down, build bigger, bigger barns and fill them up and then throw a party for himself, eat, drink, and be merry. But somebody showed up at the party that was not invited. God. And God said, thou fool. He wasn't a fool because he had stuff. He was a fool, as Jesus tells in the story, because he was not rich toward God. It's all about the definitions. He has a totally different definition of wealth. Which brings us then to what we need to do. Notice that the text continues to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So it's interesting. You want money? You like shopping? I love the context he puts this in. He said, obviously, the Laodiceans like shopping. You know, the Bentley dealerships just down the road and the Gucci purses are right over here and they get a buzz out of shopping. And Jesus, I don't want to make light of this, but just kind of, Jesus said, why don't you come to my mall? I've got some things that you can't get anywhere else that will make you truly rich. Truly rich. And so he says, come, buy from me gold, which was familiar to them with all their banking and gold in their city. Buy from me gold that is refined by fire that you may be truly rich. So what, what does that mean? Well, all through Scripture, gold, pure gold, is a symbol for character and quality of life. I find it interesting that the more we buy in the malls and the streets, cities and the shops, can it actually make us worse. It can make us proud. It can make us comparative. And Christ said, I have a different something for you. And sometimes gold refined by fire talks about suffering. And how that God will sometimes even use suffering to purify our lives and, and to bring us to a place where our lives are strong and good and rich in character and ultimately rich in the character of him so that we are becoming like him. Uh, rich in the fruits of the Spirit so our lives are about love, not self-centeredness. Joy, not unhappiness. Peace, patience, long... You know the list. And he's saying, only I can give you this, a transformed life. And I welcome you to come and buy that from me and become truly rich. Or he says, I welcome you to buy robes of white that I will, again, appealing to their whole linen selling robes globally enterprises. He said, you sell your black robes to everybody, but I will give you robes that are white. And the scriptural image there is of his righteousness. I'm sure under Paul's teaching, you know that when you come to Jesus Christ, so many wonderful things happen. But one thing he does is he clothes you in his righteousness. 
so that you can become fully acceptable in the presence of God. If I were to go into the presence of God on my own, without his righteousness, I would be consumed in the holy terror of his holiness, given my sinfulness. I would, I would be subject to his wrath. I would be so unsafe in the presence of a holy God. But only from Jesus Christ can I be clothed in his righteousness so that I am acceptable in the presence of God. I can have fellowship with God and I have prayer life where God can hear my prayers and interact with me in prayer. And, and when I can hear him speak to me through the Holy Spirit indwelling, I mean, you don't get that anyplace else than from Jesus Christ. And not only that positional righteousness, but also the practical righteousness where he leads us in the ways of righteousness, keeps us out of the destructive pitfalls and cliffs and booby traps and mines of Satan's territory and leads us to do what is right and to live what is right by his Holy Spirit through the word and an example of his life. And he says, let me give, make you rich like that. And you like your eye salve that helps people see? <laughs> Come to me, you blind ones, and let me give you salve for your eyes. Buy from me salve from your eyes, and you will see that suddenly my eyes are open, and I see the world from God's point of view. I'm no longer blind toward the needs of people around me, and blind toward the lost, and blind Toward, uh, to, toward the way God sees sin and evil and good and, and all of that, that, that God wants to give me the ability to see and to be wise in all my perspectives. And you can only get that from Jesus Christ. So I just love where he takes them. You're caught in this trap of thinking you have everything you need and you're really poor and blind and wretched and naked, so come to me. If you get a buzz from shopping, come to me. I will give you these things that only you can get from Jesus Christ and become truly rich. And so he said, if we're asking what can we do, we turn our focus to him, pursue him, and repent. And find the riches of our lives to be in him. What Jesus is saying to me and to you is that you really don't need more stuff. You need more of Jesus. That that's what you really need in your life. And the closing imagery in my mind is powerful. Because he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, if I can just pause for a minute and say that how often I've heard this used in an evangelistic context where we're trying to reach people for Christ and, and tell them that Christ wants to come into their life and we open to Revelation 3.20, right? And say, behold, Christ stands at your door right now and knocks. If you open the door of your heart, he will come in and you'll be saved. Well, that's true. And, and, by, and that would also get all of us off the hook, right? If we're followers of Christ. But this is written to Christians, in fact, the formula he uses for Christians was to reprove those whom I love, I reprove. That's what he says here. So it's not written to the pagans. This is written to Christians, which makes suddenly this metaphor that because of my 
confidence in my own prosperity. I have pushed Jesus out of my life, out to the margins, and he's standing on the outside, knocking, wanting, waiting to come in. Now, the imagery of Jesus, the humble Christ now, standing outside of my life, knocking, wanting to come in, in my mind, has some profound uh, nuances to it. First of all, when he shows up in, in Revelation chapter 1 to John, he shows up in this majestic, powerful Christ. And, and all that he's described are to, really in reference to describing the gods of the Roman Empire as a picture that he is superior to all of these gods that are pressing in on the church. His white hair, his tongue is like a two-edged sword. His voice is like the voices of many waters. And it's such a compelling image of Christ that John falls down like a dead man before him. And now that compelling, worthy Christ is found on the outside of my life, knocking, wanting, how can this be? And then I think, though deeply offended by their need for nothing, he still desires fellowship with them. That's an amazing thought. God has impressed us with one reality throughout the whole history of Scripture. In Eden, he created Edom, put us in the garden with him so that he could have unhindered fellowship with us. And then we fell. And then he wanted to tabernacle with us in the wilderness, remember? He, wanted, he loves to be with his people. He, he longs for fellowship and intimacy with his people. That's the, his heart's desire in his whole creation order. And then when Jesus comes, John tells us that he pitched his tent among us. He doesn't go up, live with those fancy guys in Jerusalem that had the cool hats. But he, he, he was with us and he pitched his tent among us. And then after he left, he dwells within us. Now I am his temple. And here... He continues to desire you and to come in if you can stop listening to the clutter of your stuff to open a door so he can come in and dine with you which in that culture were long hours of sitting around the table and it wasn't the food or just the food it was the fellowship that was the feature that he would desire to fellowship with you. So I've come all the way from America to ask you this question. Can you hear him knocking? Can you hear him tell you that there is a whole different definition of what makes you truly rich? That he wants to give to you. And can you open the door and Welcome him in as the true source of your wealth. I have a friend who's um, from Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and uh, he's actually the vice president of all the churches, in of all the Baptist churches in Belarus. And Marty and I have been over visited with him on occasion, and fellowshiped with him and done some preaching with him. So I remember one day he said, hey, Joe, I'm going to go out and meet my mom. Do you, do you want to come? 
So Marty said, sure, where does she live? He said, about an hour outside of Minsk. And so we got in a van, we start driving out there, and he says, my dad died s several years ago, and she's a widow. And so we're driving down the highway, and then we take a left off on this kind of more remote road and went down that for a while. And then we turned right onto this road that was just basically like two tire tracks with weeds growing up in the middle. So I knew we were going someplace very remote. And as we drove down that path for a while, suddenly emerged this, this village, this like shanty town. There wasn't a house in that village you'd want to live in. It was obviously poor. And, and as he drove his van down one little side street, he pulled up in front of this shack and said, this is where my mom lives. And she came running out. Her babushka was on, ruddy cheeks. And she came running out to meet us and hugged Victor, of course, her son had come, and the joy, I couldn't believe the joy of this woman. I figured it was because Victor had come home, and we walked into her little home, and I noticed that she had her own little garden, and then she had a pig. I said, Victor, your mom's got a pig. He said, yeah, she uh, raises him in the summer and eats him in the winter. <laughs> we went in and sat down in this two-room around this little rickety table and she had cut us some cucumbers and tomatoes which probably was a pretty expensive spread for her she had nothing but the joy and I soon found out from what she was saying as Victor would interpret it that the joy wasn't just that Victor had come home but primarily in Jesus Christ because that's all she talked about how she loved Christ how she couldn't wait to go home and be with Christ. And I'm going, how can this woman, how can this be? And here this woman with nothing seems to have everything. And the joy of her heart is so full. <laughs> because she had Jesus in his fullness. And um, I have to tell you that I felt immediately convicted and immediately challenged. I felt convicted because, to be honest with you, in my life, I don't have that kind of just exuberant joy in Jesus. And I said, that's what I want. That's what I want. And I felt challenged to reverse my whole sense of what the holy grail of life really is all about and to refocus my heart and, and soul again, on the riches that Jesus seeks to bring to us. And I welcome you to that journey. God bless you.